2023 to date for me has been a different year and it's been one that's been marked by a lot of funerals. I'm not sure if that's just my stage of life or if that's reality for everyone, but it seems we've participated or been involved in a lot of farewells this year. And a funeral serves multiple purposes to those attending. It is an important thing to do to grieve, to gather together, to heal a wound, For believers, it is particularly important to gather together in common hope for the future, for the return of Christ, for the salvation that we have in Christ. One thing that marks funerals is that there's usually, just about always, a eulogy. And a eulogy, by definition, you can only say good things about a person. Some eulogies are longer than others, by the nature of it. A life well lived, in service to Christ, in service to his church, and service to family often has quite an extensive eulogy. A lot of good things are said. And we do this to honor that person and to honor the memory of that person. And in doing so, as believers, we honor Christ. What does it mean to honor someone? Why should we honor someone? And what does the Bible say about honor? Specifically, what does it say about whom we should honor? I think we should maybe start with a definition of honor. Honor to honor as the verb, is to esteem highly, to hold in high regard, to show great respect, perhaps to revere, to speak highly of. And often in the Bible it's used synonymously or in conjunction with glorify or exalt when we're speaking in relation to God, to honor. We honor someone who has passed at a funeral. We hold their memory in high regard. We show great respect. We 
speak highly of. So who is to be honored in the Bible? When the Bible speaks about honor, who is it that we are to honor? Well, I think first and foremost, the obvious answer is that God is to be honored and that God will be honored. God will be honored and is to be honored by all of his creation. For example, 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of, all of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And the same type of phrasing is heard in many other places. Honor and glory to God. Revelation 5.13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Honor is to be given to God and at the end of all things will be given to God. How is God honored? God is honored by worshiping and glorifying him as we've done this morning. Psalm 50, verse 23 the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We honor God by offering our thanksgiving and our praise to him. This glorifies God. This honors God. God is honored by obedience to him, to himself. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel, the prophet, Ezekiel 33, speaks of a people who said the right things, but did not obey God. They said one thing with their lips and did another thing with their actions, and thus dishonored God. Judgment was coming for these people. We can and we should honor God with our speech, but it must be supported and held up with the consistent actions of obedience. To say one thing and do another is disobedience and dishonoring to God. And we have those warnings, particularly in the book of Ezekiel. We are to honor God with our possessions. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the, with the first fruits 
of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God knows our hearts and knows that our possessions can cling closely to our hearts. If we do not honor God with our wealth, with our possessions, to any degree, it displays the condition of our hearts. The New Testament says we cannot serve both God and money. We must honor the Lord with our possessions, with what we do with our possessions and how closely they cling to our hearts. You know how closely they cling when they're gone. Honor the Lord with your possessions. Malachi contains a warning to the priests about not honoring God. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. There's a warning about not honoring God. Who is to be honored? God is to be honored. It's also interesting that God says that he will honor those who honor him. First Samuel 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. In the New Testament, Romans 2, verse 9 and 11, 9 to 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And perhaps one of the most clear verses of this in the New Testament, John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I found it interesting and fascinating that God himself, the God of the universe, will honor those, will hold in high regard will esteem highly, will speak highly of those who live in obedience to him. God, whom we honor, will honor those who live in obedience with him. I can't, I can't get my head around that thought. That's amazing. 
that God would honor those who serve him. We are to honor our parents. And this is perhaps one of the most common or well-known verses that we know. Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, which quotes the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 12. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. How do we honor our parents? Well, we honor them by obeying them, by speaking highly of them, by respecting their wishes, by taking physical care of them, by service to them. I spoke about funerals earlier, and when we're preparing a funeral for someone, it's often said we want to honor their wishes. What would they like? How would they like this done? What, what hymn would they like sung? What was their favorite verse? That's honoring them. We, we are to honor our parents. We are to honor fellow believers. Romans 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now note the correlation here between love and honor. In the same way that we are to honor God, we are to honor one another with profound love that displays the love of God, with service by seeking their interests and not our own, and by speaking highly of and by having actions that correlate with our speech. Outdo one another is the command in showing honor. Honor is shown. It's not just a state of mind. Honor is shown. It's an action. It results in real activity and real speech. It's not just something in your head. Outdo one another in showing honor to fellow believers. Philippians 2.29 Talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. The man referred to Timothy and Epaphroditus are men worthy of honor, according to this passage. And this will be our portion of Scripture under study this morning. In summary, I might have taken the long way around about honor, but to give a background, an overview, God is to be honored at all times by his creation. God will be honored in all, by all in heaven. God is honored by an obedient life. God honors those who obey 
him and bring him glory. And we are specifically told to honor our parents, honor our fellow believers, and in this passage, honor such men as these in Philippians 2.29. So we want to specifically look at that passage today. If the Philippian church was told to honor such men as these, what are the characteristics and qualities of those men that made them honorable? The passage today is Philippians 2, 19 to 30. So I'll read that. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and on not only on him but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Would you pray with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage today, for the many references to honor in your word, that we are to honor you, we pray for wisdom and guidance as we delve into this passage. We pray that we can glean truth that we may apply into our lives. We pray that our hearts would be ready to hear and submit to your truth and the work of your Holy Spirit today. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The key phrase, I think, in this whole passage is honor such men in verse 29. It's a verb. It's a command. It's given to all of them. Honor such men. 
The passage from 19 to 30, I have to admit, perhaps confess that although it was the next passage in this study I'm doing in Philippians, it seemed like it was maybe a bit light. There's pretty heavy theological truth before it and after it. I mean, I, I kind of struggled with it a little bit. It seemed like, like it didn't really fit. And it seemed like it was just a narrative, just like he was discussing the plans for the future, what was going to happen. It seemed like he was just taking a break from his, his letter. And that's not true at all. As Dick quoted this morning, all scripture is breathed out. All scripture is important. All scripture is profitable. And so I had to look at it again, and I, the question I asked was, why is this text here? Why is this what seems to be a break in this flow why is it there? Why isn't it at the end? You know, typically, the final greetings and other remarks are, are at the end of the letter that Paul usually does. If we look at Colossians, for example, chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, he's concluding his letter, and he says, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. This is kind of the normal pattern But Paul places this travelogue right in the middle of his letter. So that was my question. Why did he do that? Why, what sense does that make? And the further I looked and studied this text, it appears to me that Paul is describing the lives of several men that are living in fulfillment of the command given in chapter 1, verse 27, which starts this whole segment of Scripture. The command is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the passage starting in 127 goes on to talk about his encouragement to stand firm in one spirit, to stand firm with one mind, to, to strive together side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
to not be frightened by persecution, but be secure in their faith. It's an encouragement that they need to know that it's been granted to them not only salvation, but also suffering. And that they must be ready for that. That their manner of life must reflect the gospel, must be worthy of the gospel. Chapter 2 goes on to encourage them to be of one mind. To do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. To look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then there's a dramatic description of the ultimate example of this humility, and that is Christ himself. who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and came to earth in the likeness of man, humbled himself, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And then God exalted him so that at the name of Christ every knee should bow. Honor is given, ultimate honor. And chapter 2 continues in verse 12, the command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is how it is to look in your life, to live it out, that salvation. With fear and trembling, with constant attention to the fact that Christ himself has saved you. And that is Christ working in you to give you the desire and the ability to live out that salvation, all for the glory of God. To do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And that section ends with Paul saying, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He finishes that section and he comes to this next portion about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I think upon reflection of his previous writing here, is that he is now presenting men who have lived lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's not just a narrative. He's not just giving us details about travel plans. He's telling us these are real men in my life that have lived lives worthy of the gospel 
honor such men. He's giving us practical, real-life examples of men that have fulfilled or are fulfilling that command. This passage only explicitly speaks of Timothy and Epaphroditus. But I'm going to argue that there's a third man that was fulfilling those commands. And that third man, I think, was Paul himself. And we can arm wrestle about that later. But I, I think, just hear me out, I think, I think there's a third man there. I think it's himself as well. That there's some traits there that he implicitly argues that are worthy to be followed. So I'm going to include Paul as the first man. I've called this the lives of honorable men. Paul. And there's really only one thing there about Paul that I want to talk about. And the primary feature about Paul that I'd like to bring out of this text is that he made plans that were subject to the will of God. He couches his writing with terms such as, I hope, I trust, I hope in the Lord Jesus. This is also could be translated, if the Lord wills, in the Lord Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus. I hope if the Lord wills. I have a hopeful expectation. This is what I would like to do if the Lord wills. He, pr he places his plans directly under the sovereignty of God, under the will of God. He made plans that were in line with God's known will and commands. He was being obedient to God's will. But he knew that they would be subject to God's sovereign will. Things might change. The circumstances might change. The interesting thing is this, this was even at a time when it seemed unlikely that he would ever be released from prison. He was in prison. The likelihood of getting out was pretty low. And so he says, just as soon, uh, just as, soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also. He never did go, but he had that hopeful expectation that he would be allowed to go free not for the sake of his own freedom, but so that he could continue to serve God in ministry. His plans were subject to the will of God. He'd already spoken of this mindset back in chapter 1. If you remember verse 19 to 26. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not 
be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. He's speaking with hopeful anticipation that he will go, but also with the firm reality in his head that, that he may not and that Christ, that he may die there. And he says, that's far better. His soul was resting on the promises of God. Christ was the sure and steadfast anchor of his soul in the midst of circumstances that he could not control and that he could not know the outcome. The outcome, either way, he was content with. He made his plans firmly to continue on in his ministry if he was allowed to go, but was just as happy to be taken to be with Christ. So Paul made plans that were subject to the will of God, and this I'm going to argue is in keeping with a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Timothy is our next man worthy of honor. Who is Timothy? Timothy was his faithful companion and worker in the gospel. He was a faithful messenger. I hope to send Timothy. He has sent Timothy on at least two other missions for him in the past, from Athens to Thessalonica, as recorded in 1 Thessalonians 3, and from Ephesus to Corinth, recorded in 1 Corinthians 4. He's a proven, faithful messenger. The phrase that defines Timothy is that Paul says that he has no one like him. If we dig into that phrase, it means one who is one in soul and mind, one who is similarly minded, there is no equal in Paul's mind. There is no one else in 
his vicinity and his midst that displays the, char- the qualities and characteristics that he has written about. Paul knows his very soul intimately and says there is just no one like him. This is displayed by Timothy's genuine concern for the Philippians' welfare. Verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy sought the interests of others, and I think this reflects back to chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Timothy had genuine concern for the Philippians' welfare. Timothy had proven worth in laboring side by side, seeking a common interest. I think this refers back to the latter part of 127. You are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving working, one mind, one spirit, one common interest, the interest of Christ. Timothy sought the things of Christ. In verse 21, everyone else in Paul's midst sought their own interests, not the interests of Christ. By inference, we know that Timothy sought the interests of others that correlates with the interests of Christ. The interests of others correlates with the interests of Christ. He was obedient to that. Timothy was committed to the gospel. Paul says that he served with me in the gospel as a son with a father, laboring together, one mentoring and teaching the other, honoring each other as fellow believers. They served together. They were committed to the gospel. He served with me in the gospel. There was no one like him. He was one in soul and mind with Paul in his commitment to Christ. Epaphroditus. was to be sent. Sent back to Philippi. So the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to Paul. It says, your messenger and minister to my need. And we know that from chapter 4, verse 14 to 20. Because Epaphroditus carried with him from Philippi a gift, a financial gift for Paul in prison to minister to his needs. And so we know that Epaphroditus was a proven man. He was entrusted with a message and entrusted with a gift 
He was entrusted to minister to Paul with his gift and with his abilities. And Paul had gotten to know him and worked with him and spent time with him. And he calls Epaphroditus my brother. Epaphroditus was like family to him. He calls him my fellow worker. Paul had the experience of working side by side, striving together. We know when we work together with someone is when you really get to know someone, particularly if you're working cattle. In my profession, we, we find out a lot about people. When you're working together with someone, you, f- you find out who they really are. We find out their work ethic. We find out what level of patience they have. We find out a lot of things, their attention to detail. And he calls Epaphroditus a fellow worker, someone who's worked together, strove together with him. He calls him my fellow soldier. So these have different aspects. Family, worker, soldier. And the experience of soldiers, of fighting for or defending something in common. And they were fighting for the gospel. They were defending the truth of the gospel together. They acted as soldiers together. So all of this describes Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus had genuine concern for the Philippians. So it appears that when he was sent from Philippi, he likely got sick on the trip, and very sick. And word got back to the Philippian church that he was ill, and it says he was ill, near to death. And God healed him. He had mercy on him. But Epaphroditus was concerned that the church in Philippi was concerned about him. He was distressed that they were worried about him. That was his level of concern. It wasn't about himself. It was about them. He had genuine concern for them. This level of illness is displayed by his dedication to the gospel cost him nearly his life. Verse 30, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. He risked his life in service of the gospel. That's what we know about Epaphroditus. These are the character traits. And the text says, honor such men. Men who we know now, we can pull the traits, the character traits. If we do a biography of these men, they are faithful. They have proven worth. 
They have genuine concern for others. They labor side by side. They seek the interests of Christ. They seek the interests of others. They're committed wholeheartedly and completely to the work of the gospel. Honor such men. How should we apply this today? Well, I think first and foremost, the obvious application is that we are to seek to honor such men and women in our midst who display the characteristics of living a life worthy of the gospel. This is a good thing to do. This is a command to honor faithful servants. We need to speak highly of, to recognize the work of God in their lives, to respect their service and their opinions, to recognize them and thank them for their work in our midst. This is a good thing to do. And many of you will remember that this is the text that Jason Goulet spoke of on Pastor Jim's retirement. Honor such men. He was in practically doing this, honoring a faithful servant in our midst. So that's what we need to do. Seek out those people who have proven to be faithful in your lives, faithful examples, who have inspired you and encouraged you, and honor them. Secondly, we should seek to live the life of an honorable person. One who displays the characteristics of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Be the honorable person. Philippians 3.17 Paul says, join, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is bold about saying that. Imitate us. Be the honorable person. Be that person. How can we do that in all practicality? Well, I think if we learn something from Paul, from the life of Paul in this passage, I think an honorable person will subject our plans to the will of Christ, as Paul showed that he did. Subject our plans to the will of Christ. This requires a couple of things. This requires that we still make plans. Paul still made plans. We 
can know what God's will is for our life. It's to honor him by obeying his commands and seeking to glorify him in our life. The day-to-day details of that obedience will vary. What we do doesn't often matter. What we do for a living, what we, it's how we do it. And in Philippians particularly, contentment is the key. Are we content in all of our circumstances, knowing that the Lord is sovereign and that he is good? Do we rest in his grace as we make plans? Do we declare with the psalmist in 116, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. We are not paralyzed by our circumstances and by our situations. We make plans. We have hopeful expectation of what we want to do, what we are to do, what we know we should do in accordance with God's will. And if that door appears to close and this one opens and we follow that in accordance with God's will and live in obedience The key passage, probably, I think, with regard to this, is in James, chapter 4. Having plans subject to the Lord's sovereign will. You will know this passage from verse 13 to 15. Come now, you say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Our immediate plans may change when our circumstances change. We must recognize that God is in control and is sovereign and seeks our good. This can be hard because sometimes we put our plans ahead of all else, what we want to do. And sometimes that gets taken from us. I always go back to the promise in Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If we are living and walking in obedience with Christ, we will not lack anything that we require. Even though our situation, our circumstances, may not be the one that we would choose if it was our own doing. We can know that God is good, and that he does not withhold any good thing if we are living in accordance with his will. So let's seek to subject our plans to the will of Christ. Say it. If we, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, we will go. We hope to do this. 
That's practically subjecting your, your plans to the will of Christ. Secondly, if we seek to live the life of an honorable person who displays this characteristic of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to develop and show genuine concern for others. Otherwise known as love. The Christian life cannot and should not be lived in isolation. How can we serve others if we do not know others, if we do not spend time with others, if we do not know what they are in need of? We must get to know others, spend time with, to listen, to talk with, to discover their needs. Show that genuine concern. It means setting aside our plans, our interests, and looking at the interests of others. It involves prayer. It involves time spent with, speaking with, filling needs, ministering to. The other side of that, if you're on the receiving side, is that we need to let ourselves be known. so that the body of Christ can minister to us. The body of Christ cannot minister to us if we do not allow them to. If we put up the walls, if we have a facade, everything's fine. You can't be ministered to. So there's two parts to that. We need to develop concern for others, and we need to allow others to develop concern and express concern to us by opening ourselves up to others. Thirdly, we need to labor side by side in the gospel. We need to develop working relationships with others who are laboring for Christ. That's within the church within the community, in our homes, and around the world. This is referred to multiple times in these passages as striving. This involves effort and attention, our full attention and our full effort. This is not a Sunday morning thing. To labor, to strive, is your life's effort side-by-side side with others in the gospel. The passage talks about risking our life for Christ. Risking what we have, our possessions, our position. This may involve speaking out for Christ in a world that shuns Christ. And in fact, in today's world in Canada, makes Christian speech illegal. There are some things that are biblical that are now illegal to say in Canada, 
publicly. It's hate speech. What are we willing to risk? We must boldly declare the word of God. Above all, to live a life of an honorable person, we must seek the interests of Christ. This was a key feature of Timothy's character. There was no one like him in Paul's circle because he sought the interest of Christ above all. We seek Christ's interest by knowing him and his will and by obedience to what we know is true, and we submit our entire lives to Christ for his glory. I would be negligent in my duty today if I didn't declare one important detail at this point. The detail, according to God's word, is that we cannot live an honorable life in the sight of God if we are not first a child of God. There are many people who do good in this world. But they are not always first and foremost seeking the interests of Christ. You can be kind, you can be helpful, you can be sincere, honest, and concerned for others, and yet God will not honor you because you have not submitted to the lordship of Christ in your life and have not received the gift of salvation. We read earlier John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. One cannot serve the Father and have interest in and affection for the things of this world. Man cannot serve both God and possessions or wealth or status or any other thing. The one that God honors has a heart with a singular affection, the things of Christ. And if your heart is not in that place today, the good news is that it can be. You can be in a place where the God of the universe honors you. The bad news is that you can't do this on your own. This requires a supernatural change by God himself. You can't make yourself a better person in the sight of God. You can't make yourself an honorable person in the sight of God. Only God can do that. The Bible says that we are to repent of our sins and turn from our wicked ways and follow Christ. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross when he died for us. We must submit to that truth, turn, and follow him with our whole heart and our whole being. God transforms our heart into something new. One that can know him and that can love him, that can obey him, and that can truly love others self-sacrificially. So I pray that you would consider this today if you have not yet submitted to him. For those who have, let us recognize and honor those in our lives that have lived lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Those who have lived contented and obedient lives in service to God and their fellow believers. May we seek them out and tell them 
that they have been an encouraging example to us in our daily walk. Let us also seek to be those honorable people, those honorable men and women, and may we keep our eyes on those examples of faithful and worthy servants of Christ in our lives. May we, in keeping with Paul's encouragement in chapter 3, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. May we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May we examine our lives daily to see what hinders us from being a person whom God and our fellow believers will honor. May we live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. May we seek the interests of Christ and our fellow believers, and may we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which instructs us and helps us, which guides us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit which will apply these truths to our heart and we pray that we would submit to the truth of your word today. May we seek to live lives that are worthy of honor. May we seek lives that bring you glory and honor in all that we do. We pray for humility, for courage, for strength, for compassion, and above all, for love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to close as a benediction from Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of the, of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, but their minds set on earthly things. In contrast, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things even to himself. <laughs>